Philippians chapter 4. That will be our destination this morning. The theme of 2 Corinthians is comfort and affliction. And while many of us will not know the affliction like Paul has gone through, uh, we can all relate to affliction because affliction, suffering, trials, pain, uh, setbacks, whatever you want to call them, they're no respecter of persons. And so here we find ourselves this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul has already kind of set a foundation for why he's written this letter. And since he set that foundation, I really want to go back over it because I feel in my own heart that I haven't really, um, I feel like I'm scatterbrained about what's the purpose of this book. In the context of any of these books that we study, we want to have a, a good read on it. We want to know what the context is of what he's saying in each chapter. So this week's message is entitled, His Power, Not Ours, For His Purpose. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, what you found out is that your power, your strength, your wisdom, all of it, is not enough to carry on and live this life of faith. If it is, you haven't stepped out a whole lot. It's just a part of being a child of God is that the Lord allows things into our lives that stretch us beyond what we can do on our own. You've heard the phrase that God won't give you anything more than you can handle, and that, I, I agree with that in part, but I also believe that God gives us more than we can handle sometimes so that we'll need him. If anything that we feel like God's given us in our lives allows us to live dependent, or excuse me, independent from him and his grace and his empowerment, then I don't believe that we've really stepped out into the things he's called us to. And so God has stretched Paul. He stretched the Corinthian church. And so the Corinthians have been stirred up since him writing the first letter and him leaving and going to be somewhere else and plant another church, there have been false teachers that have come along behind Paul and said, hey, um, are you really sure that Paul is an apostle? Are you really sure that he's somebody that God sent to you to impart wisdom? Do you really think that you can believe what he's taught you? Here's some things that we'd like to add that we really think that you need that he didn't give you. And so Paul writes this letter to answer some questions that are stirred up in them by these false teachers. Whether or not his authority as an apostle was actually from God, he kind of defends himself, but at the same time, he doesn't. He kind of commends them. He says, look at my life. Look at what I've taught you. Look at your lives and how they've changed as a result of the message that I preached. And then you can see the authenticity of that I'm actually someone who's been given the authority by God to be an apostle. He also writes this letter to give thanks to God for the ones who, since the first letter, have repented of their sin and their rebellion, but also to appeal to those who are still in rebellion and rejecting his counsel. There was a minority that was still there, but you know how it goes. You know, one, one little squeaky wheel, one little, uh, what, what is the phrase? You know, I'm trying to think of the, <laughs> some, something, one thing that's bad in the pot will destroy the whole meal. And so in the same case in church, we often think, well, there's only one troublemaker. Well, when that one troublemaker or that one person who's bitter or when that one person who speaks unwell of others is in that pot, it spoils the whole deal. It, it messes things up. It, it's like when one part of your body has a, an ache or a brokenness in it, the whole body feels it. And so the Lord, he's always trying to heal those wounds and he's always trying to get rid of that bitterness and, and quench it. So Paul spends time in this book defending his conduct his character, and calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He defends himself, 
But he, he kind of says, hey, I'm not trying to defend myself so much as I am the message that I'm proclaiming because the enemy of God knows that if he can uh, discredit the messenger of God, then he can discredit the message. So people were always trying to discredit Paul and say, well, he's not really an apostle or he did this wrong or, hey, did you hear this about him? And in order to not so much do anything to Paul, but they really wanted to stop the message of Jesus Christ from going forth in a manner that was effective. And so to review what we've seen so far, in chapter 1, Paul gives the introduction And then after that, he explains why his plans have changed. See, they were saying, well, Paul's not really an apostle because he said he was going to come here at such and such a date, and then he didn't. Like, where's he at? If we can't trust him to show up when he says he's going to, can we really trust what he has to teach us? You know, and there's good question in that because what did Jesus say? He says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But the scriptures always also say, you know, Come, you who say you're going to go do such and such or build this place or make money, buy, sell, and trade. He says, for you don't know what your life will bring. He says, therefore, when you say you're going to do something, this is in the book of James, he says, say, I'm going to do such and such, Lord willing. If the Lord is willing, that's when I will do this thing. So Paul's saying, look, I I did say I was going to come, but I also put in there that phrase, Lord willing. It's not a disclaimer, it's just reality. We don't always know what the will of God is, and so we have things we want to do, and sometimes the Lord says, hey, uh, I want you to do that thing, but you're going to need to wait for a while. So then Paul had merely told them, Lord willing, I will come to you at such and such a time. So he says, you know, if that's the reason you're not going to listen to me, uh, you be waiting in your life because that's going to happen to you too. And then when people discredit you, you're going to feel a little bit of my pain. You know, I'm not perfect and no one else is. Chapter 2, Paul refers to a man that had been, had before told them to be put out of fellowship. Remember, there was a man who had an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And so he was living in open sin. He was coming to church every week. Nobody said anything. They were actually commending each other like, hey, good job. He feels comfortable here. And while we do want people to come into the church and feel comfortable, because every one of us comes in with some sort of baggage, some sort of sin that we're not aware of, when there's stuff that's obvious, the Lord, he doesn't want us to condemn people, but he does want them to be freed of it. So we need to make that distinction. If someone comes in and they call themselves a believer, and they're not repenting of obvious sin, they need to confess that thing and be healed of it. And if they refuse to repent, they need to be put outside of the church and outside of fellowship so that outside of the protection and the love of the Lord, they can realize that their sin separates them from God just like it does from the church as a fellowship. And the heart for separation or church discipline is always so that the person will be brought back into fellowship, repentant, willing to confess so that they can be healed, so that their sin can be taken out of their life. God, does, God loves you the way that you are, but, but he loves you enough to cleanse you, to change you. Somebody said one time that, yes, Jesus is a fisherman, but he cleans every fish that he catches. Does that make sense? So God, while he does love us where we are, when we are there, he also told the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, he didn't condemn her, but he said, go and sin no more. You know, and so that's where it all starts. But then if someone continues to live in that sin, they're not doing themselves any justice and they're not doing the church any good. There's problems and God cannot bless sin. 
And so Paul, in the second letter, he says, hey, this man's repented. Bring him back in. He, he's repented. Don't leave him out there so he's so sorrowful that he has no hope. You know, he needs to be loved. He needs to be encouraged. He needs to know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul would write in Romans. You know, there needs to be that bringing back in and loving on someone and restoring them into fellowship. And then in chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 6, verse 10, Paul imparts to the Corinthians his philosophy of ministry. He shares with them his heart for what God's called him to do. In other words, he explains to them why he does what he does. If we just do as a church and we never tell anybody why we're doing what we do, what we're doing could actually be misunderstood. It could rub people the wrong way, even though they might be assuming some of our intentions. And as believers, if we've got things that God's called us to do, and we do things a certain way, and we never explain to our children or the people that we work with why we believe what we believe or why we live out our faith the way that we do, sometimes we get misunderstood and then they start to get bitter or they hate us. Or, and so Paul says, hey, look, I want you to know why I'm doing the things that I'm doing, why I'm doing the way that I'm doing. To see what he does without knowing why he does them might cause there to be some misunderstandings and cause division in the church. So Paul lets the Corinthians behind the scenes of his life to explain to them why he is compelled and what drives him to do what he does. Perhaps they will be inspired to follow him as he follows Jesus. And that's what he taught. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul wrote to those Corinthians, he said, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. The things that you've seen me do that I followed in the footsteps of Jesus, follow me, do them also because they'll be good for you. And then in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, Paul explains that you know, it, they wanted him to be basically explaining how he could prove that he's an apostle of God. And what he said is that changed lives prove the authenticity and the authority of the minister. So if God sent anyone... There will be fruit from their lives that comes to the glory of God. And Paul said, hey, look, if you don't believe I'm an apostle, you don't need a letter from someone you don't know. Look at your life. Look at the lives of those who are around you that are following Jesus. Doesn't that in and of itself prove the authenticity and the authority that God's given me? The message I've shared with you has changed your lives eternally, not just for a moment, it's a permanent change, and that change is continuing. Look at how you're treating your wives. Look at how you're treating your family. Look at the things that have caused you to work different at your workplace. Those things are all evidences of the message of the gospel in Jesus, forgiving you of your sins, setting you free, changing your attitude towards God, and in part of that, changing your attitude towards the people around you. Look at you. You've got compassion. Of course, I'm kind of going a little bit further than Paul's saying. He's just saying, look at your lives. Look at where you came from. Look at where you are now. The gospel has the power to change people. And Paul knows this. We talked about this. Paul knows this because personally, look at his life. He was consenting to people stoning Christians. He was going to other towns to drag them out of their homes and when he was met on the road by Jesus, on the road to Damascus, he did a complete 180. Miraculously, he stopped persecuting Christians. He joined them. And immediately, it says, he went and started sharing the gospel with the other Jews because he was Jewish. He had a heart for the people that were where he was at. 
And then Paul wrote in this book, he said, look, the gospel is veiled to those that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he talks about the Jews and Romans, and he talks about people that, you know, they, they believe, well, I, I see the Bible, I see what it has to say, but I don't understand it. And Paul says, put your faith in Jesus, ask him for understanding, and then he will remove the scales from your eyes just like he did me. And so we need to pray for people that don't know the Lord they don't understand it. You can hand a Bible to them. They can read that thing from cover to cover and not know Jesus. They can know the Word of God and not know the God of the Word. And so our prayer is that God would remove the scales. And for us as believers, that's still something that we need. I don't know about you guys, but I can read the, the Word of God every year, and I do. And I encourage you guys, if you have the opportunity, read through the Bible every year. You may feel like this is pointless. I can't get anything out of it. I'm not a reader. But what you'll see is as you read through it every year, you'll find something new each and every day. And every year you'll see a new theme that you didn't see before because it's, it's like an onion. It's layers and layers. And then you find out that the heart of the matter, the whole scripture, the main theme is not, you know, faith overcoming, although that is part of it. The main theme is not that God did miracles, although that is part of it. The main theme is that not that Adam sinned and, and, and there's been problems ever since, that, although that's part of it. The main theme is that Jesus is the Redeemer, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is fully man, and that he came to die, to pay for our sins, to free us from what kept us in slavery, and to give us abundant life. And that abundant life doesn't stop at the day that we die. It stops never because we get to spend eternity with him in heaven. And so, another soapbox, that's what I do, right? Once in a while I get excited about something. And I leave my notes and add 15 minutes. But I won't do that this morning. So Paul explains that changed lives prove the authenticity of the minister. And if there's anything that I can commend to anybody, is if, if they're walking with the Lord, there will be a changed life for them personally, and the people around them will be changed. Some of them will no longer hang out with you. And some of them will have a deeper relationship because they'll meet Jesus through you. You know, my wife will say, and if you can ask her, that when we started dating, that her life changed because of me. And sometimes she says that. What she means is that I introduced her to Jesus in many ways that she'd never experienced before. And I will say, of the, one of the guys that, that encouraged me the most was a guy that worked with me at Missouri Natural Gas. And he was at the end of the hallway. He was not a pastor. He was not a minister. He wasn't a worship leader. He wasn't somebody that worked in the church. Now he's an elder. But at the end of the hall, there's this guy who's the head of customer service at Missouri Natural Gas. And what did he talk to me about? He didn't tell me how great he was or how he got to his position. He talked to me about Jesus. Now, he started by talking to me about Jesus and how Jesus had changed his life. And what I could see in his life was the reality of that. And then I saw that Jesus had a real effect on this man and it was very influential to me. So don't despise the little things that you share with people. So here we are in chapter 3, verse 6 through 18, and Paul explains that the new covenant, this new promise God's made, the one God made with us through Jesus, is the basis for his service. It's why he does everything that he does. He's not teaching people to follow the law. Those false teachers came in and said, hey, you know, I know Paul said follow Jesus and he's everything. And, you know, it's not by works you've been saved, but it's, it's by grace you've been saved, lest anyone should boast about what they've earned. He said, but these false teachers came in and said, but you also need to keep the Sabbath. 
and it'd also be good if you made sure that you brought, you know, you sacrificed animals and hey, make sure you do this. And, and adding to their faith works, but faith without works is dead. That's what James says. But James said also that the, my works prove my faith, but they don't save me. They're just evidences that my life has been changed. So Paul says there, hey, look, don't add anything to your faith. You don't need to keep the law. Jesus fulfilled the law for you, and that's where you start from. So chapter 4, verse 1 through 7 from last week, Paul explains that the main purpose and the theme of his service, an example as an apostle in Jesus Christ. He's the reason for all that Paul did. He's the reason that Paul had any good news at all. He's the fulfillment of all that God had promised to give to those who believe in Jesus. So Paul says, just as Christ is our example, so also, he started in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, because of that, just like Jesus, we don't lose heart. The bookends of chapter 4 are, we do not lose heart. Everything in this life that presses in on you is trying to get you to lose heart, to give up your faith, to stop fighting the good fight. Everything. It's like acid to your faith. But what they don't know is that Jesus Christ is the hope. He's the glory that's in us. And nothing can overcome, nothing can conquer him because he overcame man's worst enemy, the final enemy, death. He overcame that. So everything else leading up to death can't overcome us because death couldn't overcome Jesus. It's the final victory. And so he says, do not lose heart. Paul says, just as Christ is our example, so we also, according to verse 1, we don't lose heart. He says, so we also have renounced the work of darkness and shame, not being crafty or handling God's word with deceit. I wasn't trying to deceive you, but instead we revealed the truth in the sight of all men. Paul says, we proclaim to you this message, not in darkness, but in front of everyone, commending our lives to your consciences, you guys you make an assumption. Are our lives different or not? Are we different than the rest of the world or not? I and that's what Paul was saying. I commend my life to you. I'm an open book. If you believe that God's changed me, then why don't you come with me? And if not, go, go your separate way. But we reveal the truth in the sight of all men, commending our lives to your scrutiny, is what Paul's saying. But also, more importantly, in the sight of God, who we are ultimately accountable to. You think that we're not ministers of the Lord? The Lord will work that out. He will have the final word. Then Paul said, it says there, that Paul was accused of speaking a gospel that was impossible to understand. We already talked about that. Paul said, God re will remove the scales, he'll remove the veil from the gospel, the glory of God, when we believe in Jesus first. Many people say, well, well show me something and then I'll believe. And Paul said, hey, look, the demons believe, or they believe, but there's no difference. He says, you know, trust me first and then I'll change your heart. And many people want it to be flip-flop. They want to, okay, it changed my life first and then I'll believe. Well, faith is believing in things that we don't yet see. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things unseen. God says, this thing's true. Put your faith in it and see what I do. And we go, well, show me first and then I'll, well, that's not faith. That's not faith. It's not. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. And then the key to this section, I believe, is this, where Paul says in, I think, verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, 
but Christ Jesus the Lord. In other words, Christ Jesus as Master, as Savior. He says, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Jesus himself had a ministry, just like Paul. Paul's saying that we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ as the Lord, and we're preaching that we are your servants for his sake. Jesus himself was the same way. I'm trying to make the parallel between Paul and Jesus. If you look at Paul's life, there's a lot of parallels. But look at this. Paul said, I'm not about me, I'm about Jesus. Did Jesus say, hey, I'm not about uh, Paul, or I'm not about God, but I'm about me? No. Actually, in in, uh, John chapter 6, verse 38, this is what Jesus said. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Paul's really saying the same thing. He says, I've been sent by the Lord, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus sent by the Father to us. Paul sent by Jesus to us. And so in the same way, we can say that to people if that's where we're living. We can say, hey, I didn't come to do my own will. Now this is hard, right? Because I like my will. Ask my wife. You know, I, I'm very willful, you know. But we can be willful, dis, willfully disobedient. And so maybe we should try this. When you get up in the morning, Maybe we should proclaim the gospel to ourselves. Maybe we should remind ourselves who we are and what God's called us to. Did I come to do my will today? Or did I come to do the will of the Father? Jesus, the King of glory, our Savior, His words to His disciples, to His servants, was, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of Him who sent me. Well, we're going to do the will of Him who sent us. Are we sending us or is Jesus? We have to ask ourselves that because we will deceive ourselves and I'm doing Jesus' work. And you look back and you can only see our fingerprints on it. What the Lord wants to do is he wants to put his fingerprints on our lives and on what we do. So then, again, in John chapter 4, verse 34, he said this. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So whose work are we trying to finish? If you've got work going on in your life, we all do. It's a four-letter word we don't like to talk about. But it's the stuff that we're all doing, right? It's work. Is it for the Lord or is it for you? If it's for you, you're going to get burnt out. If it's for the Lord, then there's eternal glory attached to it. There's rewards. For what we do in this life, there are rewards if we do it as unto the Lord. Now, the question becomes, what is work that you can do to the Lord? Is it being a pastor is it being a worship leader? Is it running the sound booth? Is it only uh, going out and sharing the gospel in the community? Or can you be a house mom to the glory of God? Can you raise your children? Tell them about Jesus. Uh, can you wash their dirty butts for Jesus? Can you clean your house? Can you uh, sell insurance? Like whatever you do. Can you work in a factory? Can you help people at the desk clerk. You know, all of those things are things that we can do to the glory of God. And, and it may not ever be something where, where we're going, hey, you need to know about Jesus. But if we do our work with quality and excellence, not to please our bosses, because that stops when they walk away, but to please Jesus, the quality of your work will sing praises to the Lord that you will never know about. People will see the way you conduct yourselves and the stuff that's unseen, because someone's going to, it's unseen, but somebody's going to see it, or the results of it at least. And they're going to go, wow, something's different about that. 
You can do all of those things. There's no secular versus sacred. It's all sacred if you're a child of God. Everything you do matters to him. Don't, don't make it not matter. Don't decide that, well, this isn't really important to the Lord. It's all important because you're his. And he makes everything glorious. We sang that. And we're his. So if we're his and he makes everything glorious, what does that make us? He makes us glorious. He glorifies Jesus through everything that we do. So as we get to chapter 4, verse 8, Paul explains that what God has given him to do is not easy and it's not without trials. Just because God's made you his doesn't mean the bumps are all gone. In fact, it's really the opposite. It almost gets harder because we realize how important it is that we live for the Lord. But God's glory shines forth as Paul and his fellow messengers Though they are subject to life and its struggles, it's hard, but God shines through those. The good news is that in trials, in tribulations, in pain, in life in general, which is hard, we're not stopped, Paul says, from experience. We're hard-pressed. Verse 8, we have this treasure, that's Jesus himself, the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and I went into that last week that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, or that's just a fancy word for revealed in our body. So think about this. If we have this treasure of Jesus in earthen vessels, think about what they would have in that day. They have this clay pot. Clay pot. If you put pressure from the outside on a clay pot, what happens? It crushes. It breaks. It's like an egg. Take that egg. It's got something special in it. But if you squeeze it, what happens? It breaks. It's fragile. We're fragile. Why in the world would God place his very presence in this life in you and I if we're so breakable? I mean, think about it. The things you want to protect, you don't put in something flimsy. I don't put my kid in, a, in an egg cart or an egg carton or something that's fragile in the cart. No, I get this super special 80 gajillion dollar piece of plastic that's got to, it expires after so long. There's so many regulations and rules that I, my kids are going to have to ride in a car seat until they're 21. We don't grow big enough to get out of the car seat phase, you know. But God, he takes his very presence and he places it in you and I. We are so breakable, fragile, sensitive. Some of us more than others, very sensitive, right? But he says we're hard-pressed. This is Paul's testimony. This, these are facts, not ideals or philosophies. Paul says we're hard-pressed. That literally means to crowd or to afflict but we're not crushed. If God allows you to be hard-pressed and he's in you, you won't be crushed, I promise. Like the rock on the chest. Okay, the word for hard-pressed here is like a torture that they would do in that day. They would take their enemies, they would take a prisoner, they'd lay a board on their chest, okay? Big, huge piece of plywood or something. They probably didn't have plywood, but you know what I mean. And then they would take this huge rock, they'd lay it on your chest and they'd lay you on the ground. Every time you'd take in a breath, what would happen? Couldn't breathe back out. Imagine that. I don't know about you guys, but when I get underwater and I get, or if I can't breathe or if I'm in a small space, I get freaked out. 
If I get pressed in on. But what presses in on us? Nobody lays rocks on our chest. Well, I'll tell you what was pressing in on me this morning. I was trying to fix the PowerPoint. Lucy came over and she wanted all my attention. And then I couldn't think. And then I was thinking, oh, it's five till. And then, you know, just little things. Just a little piece of straw. Just a little pebble. You know, our lives don't look like a big rock pressing on our chest. It looks like a bunch of, like hundreds of little pebbles. And really, it's not that big of a deal, but it's just everything together presses in on you and I, and we are threatened to be crushed. We feel like our, our space is being crowded. And the Lord says, you're not going to be crushed. I won't allow anything into your life that's going to crush you. If anything, I'll allow some things in your life that'll crack you. But cracks are beautiful in the life of a Christian because when we're cracked, the glory shines through. I was looking at the clouds last night, and they opened up, and there was a big old storm coming in. And this big, huge opening came up, and the, the sunlight just shined through. And as it shined through, I was just like, is Jesus coming back? I thought he was, honestly. I think it would be brighter than just the sun. But I was pretty convinced. I was like, it could be time. Kelly, we didn't need to get all this grocery. We're going to heaven. It's going to be great. No more staying up all night with Judah. It's going to be, you know. That's our hope, right? He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We will be hard-pressed, but we will not be crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. That word means to have no way out, to be hemmed into a corner. We'll be at a loss for what we can do in our circumstance. But he says, even though we will be perplexed, be ready, we won't be in despair. We will not completely be at a loss. Persecuted, to be pursued, to be chased by our enemies. Think about King David, he was pursued by Saul for years, but not forsaken. He was not alone. Read the Psalms. You'll see it. He was chased by his enemy. David had been anointed by the Lord to be king over the nation of Israel. He was pursued by Saul, and yet he was never left alone. God was with him. Even when all of his brothers, all the people that had said, we'll follow you, they forsook him. Jesus was right there with him, upholding him by his righteous right hand. And then he says, struck down. That word just means to be cast to the ground. But he says, you will be cast to the ground, but you will not be destroyed. You will not be lost. You will not be marred. You will not be made unusable. The pressures of this life, they will touch you. But they will not utterly make you unusable. Verse 10 always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. So in verse 11 and 12, it's a little bit confusing, but what he's saying is death and trouble are allowed into our lives. And I know you think Paul says that this proves uh, he's talking to the Corinthians and he says, I, I know you think this and the false teachers have told you this. Well, Paul, if he was really an apostle of God, don't you think God would protect him from all the possible dangers, all the trials of this life? It's like, well, he follows Jesus and God didn't keep all the affliction from hitting Jesus. So I'm thinking, no, Jesus said his servant is not greater than his master. And so God allows trials in our lives. Anybody that is a Christian and says, well, God wouldn't allow you any trials. I just bind that. You know, God, God allows trials, but he allows them for our good and for his glory. 
So it's because of the fact that we are gods that he allows these problems, these trials, hardships, pain, grief, sorrow, persecution even, for the sake of Jesus, so that just as he experienced trials and overcame them by the power of God, because he was broken. Isaiah chapter 53, read it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement that was going to ultimately bring you and I peace was put upon him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, by the furrows on his back, these rows of whippings over and over again, by those were healed because he took our punishment. The punishment of God on Jesus through the hands of sinners was for our peace. So in the same way, the afflictions that you and I experience in this life, they're so that we'll stop trusting in our own comfort and in our own plans. Look at Romans 5. I think we might have read it last week, but it bears repeating. In Romans chapter 5, he says this, Having been justified by faith, in other words, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Grace saves us, but it also upholds us and keeps us standing. Not only that, but we also glory, the same idea. We glory in tribulation. We overcome, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And the hope that comes out of this oven that the heat gets turned up on us, this hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You ever heard the phrase when someone says, well, that person is just full of themselves? Well, the trials that God allows in your, your life and mine, they, they allow us to be broken, and then we get emptied of ourselves, and then that's when there's room so he can fill us. You know, why isn't the glory of the Lord pouring for my life? Because there's too much of you. What did John the Baptist said, say? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. The same idea. We're cups. We can only contain so much. And so the Lord says, let's pour some of you out because there's no room for me. And we don't like that because we really like us. I really like me. I got to be honest. When God's really working on me and I'm discouraged, uh, here's the deal. I get squeezed. I get pressed in upon. And unfortunately, my wife is right there the whole time and the nastiness comes out. I get upset, angry, frustrated, full of anxiety. Well, it's just because that stuff's pouring out. Well, it pours out on the people that are closest to you. Give your family members, give your friends grace when God starts squeezing the nastiness out but make sure that you're standing close enough and stay close to them so you can pour some grace into them. We all need that. If you're praying for your family members, guarantee if they don't know the Lord, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But when it gets worse, stay close because there's going to come a time where they're going to be empty and they're going to go, now what? Everything I thought was right is gone. Pour something into them. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Let him pour into you, and then as you pour into them, what's going to happen is they're going to experience a refreshing that they've never experienced before. They're going to go through a time of just, man, give me more. But we've got to be ready for that, and we've got to stick close during the nastiness. Now, that doesn't mean that we might not have to put them aside for a time and walk away and just pray from a long range, because they may not want to be around us either. But 
pray in hope because I've seen so many folks over the last couple of years that I prayed for, many times I prayed for them doubting. And the Lord brought them to him. And at that time, they called me and said, hey, that one time you prayed for me, thank you. And I'm like, I forgot about it. I had given up. I got a buddy from high school that I prayed for for years that lives within a couple of blocks of my pastor. So I went to his house every time and I go, man, I, w- I, w- I really wish he was walking with the Lord. I really wish he knew the, the joy that I have. And I'd drive by and kind of throw up a quick, Lord, please save him. And I'd just drive by, kind of thinking that'll never happen. He's got it too good. That, he's a nice guy. He's never going to see that he needs saving uh, he's got a little bit of church and just enough to inoculate him to think that he's good enough, that he can earn his salvation. Well, just this last year, my pastor started coaching his son's soccer team. Or, excuse me, he started coaching my pastor's son's soccer team. And as they got to talking, he invited him to church. And as he came to church, he called me up and said, hey, I'm going to Parkland now. I said, cool, that's great. And I almost... I almost didn't go, thank you, Lord. I prayed for that. You answered, thank you. My point being is that God is working in all those situations. So sometimes that feels like death. He says in verse 12, so then death is working in us. We get discouraged, we get in despair, but life is working in you. When people that don't know the Lord see us go through a hard time and somehow we come through the other side with a, maybe not a smile on our face, but we got joy, Maybe some tears and some peace about it, though. What happens is that those people that see that death in our life, they're seeing the life of God poured out through us as we continue to to overcome. And then verse 13 says, And since we have this same spirit of faith, according to what is written, Paul says, I believed and therefore I spoke, quoting from the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 116, verse 10. He says, We also believe and therefore we speak. Here's, what, here's the reality. Here's something you need to know. Whatever you believe in, you're going to speak about it. You're going to tell people. So whatever's pouring out of your mouth and you're like, well, that wasn't really me. Yes, it is. It's what you believe. And what you believe will come out. That's why I'm always saying, let, read the Word of God. Put your faith in it. Try to live it out. And as you speak, what you believe in will come out and it will affect others, even if you feel like you're not having an impact. And then he says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and we present and and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes that grace having spread through that many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God the grace that God has given to us to overcome in this life until we go home is a grace that brings glory to his name but it also causes us to give thanks to him and as we are given joy in the worst of circumstances people see the hope of the glory of God in us. James chapter 1 says this. We'll have joy is what I'm trying to say. James chapter 1 verse 2 says this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into trials. Now everybody's got that in their promise book, right? Hey, this is my memory verse. Count it joy when you get pressed in upon, when you get cast down or persecuted. But here's the reason. Verse 2. Knowing that the, excuse me, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You don't have to pray for that. That's God's will for your life, to produce patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
They are, excuse me, he says, I, I wrote down some notes about this. He's, I wrote, also, notice that when we're tried, when we're tested, number one, we'll have joy, but they're like heat, trials are. And when that heat is turned up in our life, God melts away the dross. Um, when they refine gold and silver, which is what God compares our faith to, it's like precious gold and silver, it boils the, the metal, and then all the impurities come to the top, and they rake it off. And then as God refines us, he says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfected and completed so that you are lacking nothing. God has a reason for trials. He shows the, his glory to others that don't believe, but he also continues to change us from glory to glory. He wants to change you wherever you're at today. God's trying to change you. He's trying to squeeze you. He's trying to remove the nastiness. And it's all going to be for his glory, but he's also trying to change you right now. If you don't feel like God's trying to change you, ask him to, because he wants to. Maybe you're not giving him the ability to. And then as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he also says there that God's changing us from glory to glory. Let's finish Romans 8. I know I went long this morning. Verse 28. This is a well-known verse. He says there, he says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined or chose to be conformed to the image of his Son. If your life doesn't look like Jesus yet, that's the goal. So uh, be ready. He wants to change you. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. That means he made righteous. He's, make, he's made you righteous positionally. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Another important and widely known verse. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, will how, excuse me, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Here's where I'm trying to get to. Shall tribulation, shall distress, Shall persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. He brings up all the things that he was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, none of these things shall move us. Verse 16 in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. That's where we stopped, right? We don't lose heart because all of God's promises are true. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction is what Paul calls it, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, which is typically what we do, we look at the trial. We don't look at the trial. For the things which are seen, those are temporary but the things which are not seen, which is the result of the trial, what God's trying to do in the eternal realm, those things are eternal. The things which are seen are temporary. The things that which are not seen, the battle in the background, is eternal. Read the book of Job. 
Job was afflicted more than anybody I know, and yet what Job didn't know is that God was having a battlefield in the background. He's trying to show Satan that the people that trust him cannot be moved or shaken. And what we see at the end of the book of Job is that is very true. And at the same time, we see that in, the, in Job's life, there are things that God was trying to remove, hidden idols, problems that he had. God was always working on Job as well. And so, maybe God's working on you through trials. Maybe he's squeezing you and nastiness is coming out. Maybe you're discouraged. I always tell my wife, hey, if we're discouraged, more than likely God's trying to stretch us and grow us. Find comfort in that. If God has allowed these things in your life that make you uncomfortable, be comforted. That makes no sense, right? But to the believer, when we're uncomfortable in this life, God is preparing us for eternity. He's preparing it. He's removing the weights and the sins that we're carrying through. And he's like, you don't need that anymore. And he's also revealing his love and his character and his joy and his peace. Things that people won't see in us unless we're squeezed a little bit. If people see you with peace and joy and nothing bad's going on, they're going to go, well, of course they got peace and joy. Look at their life. It's perfect. But when we're squeezed and when trials happen and we have joy, even though things aren't the best, people see that we have our hope anchored to something that can't be moved. And that anchor is Jesus. They'll ask, what kind of anchor are you using? You ever go fishing and somebody's boat's not moving and yours is sliding all over the place because your anchor is one of those that doesn't hook in? You're like, hey, what kind of anchor you got? That's what people are going to ask. What kind of anchor are you using? And then you can show them. You can lift that thing up and go, my anchor is Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will not be shaken. He will not be moved. So this morning, maybe you're finding that your life is being shaken. We're going to have communion. And this is a time to remember what God has done for you in the past, what he's doing currently, to see it as not something that's vain or without significance, but that it's God's, something God has allowed at the very least in your life that he's trying to do in you. And then looking towards the future where we won't have to deal with these trials anymore. So, um, Steve, if you'll get the communion, we'll sing a